Amen. Amen. Thank you, worship team. Kids, you are now dismissed, and if you want to say hello to the person next to you, please do so. Say hello. Welcome them. Well, it is uh, such a pleasure to be with all of you this morning, those of you who are online and in person. We are really excited about the Night to Glow for our high school students. As you can see, we went all out with the black lights. If you missed it, uh, we're going to be blacking out the entire gymnasium tonight for the, uh, for the fun that we're going to have. And there's also another announcement I want to make sure I made while more people were here in the uh, congregation, and that is that many of you may have heard that uh, Brian had stepped down from the position uh, due to health issues, and his biggest prayer was that people uh, would step up to the plate and that we would find someone to replace him uh, rather quickly. And the Lord answered that prayer within a couple of days. Uh, someone with youth ministry experience that you know well, someone who has a degree in youth ministry, has stepped into the position, our one and only Rick Cessna. So, Rick, if you could stand up and just... Everyone, yes, hello. We're super excited about, uh, about Rick jumping into that position. Uh, he and I have always had fun outside of, uh, you know, life and church. So I'm looking forward to having fun with him on staff as well and uh, just messing with him all the time. So it'll be fun. What's that? He is a good golfer, I hear, too. I'm not a golfer, so he would probably whoop me pretty bad. Well, we're going to pray, and we are going to continue in our series in the life of David. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to worship you as we open up your word. I am so blessed to be able to bring the word of God. It is a special, special thing, and I do not ever take it for granted. I pray, Holy Spirit of the living God, that you will fall fresh upon us this morning. As we open up your word, that we will be transformed, that we will not just be informed. For your word is living, breathing, and active, and is not just to tickle our minds, but to change our lives. And so I pray that we will apply that which we hear this morning, myself included. In your holy and precious name, amen. Amen. I want to take you back for a moment. Think with me about the biggest school test you have ever had. Think with me about your feelings as you had to sit down, and it could be for a job, it could be for a class, it could be college, it could be high school, it could be middle school. Just think about the biggest, most important test of your life. Are you there? Are you with me? You're thinking about that test? Well, I remember my biggest test. It was six and a half hours long. It was not short answer. It was long answer. And Pastor Mike knows my pain as it was the ordination exam where we had to study and we had no idea what questions were going to be on this test. We had to look at about 260 different questions to study for and we were only going to be asked 50 of them. And we sat down, had a Bible and had a computer to type on and that was it. Six and a half hours. And it's one of those things like if you don't pass this, it's a big deal. But thankfully, I was able to pass that test. 
and I was in 2009 ordained in the Christian Missionary Alliance. But I'm sure you have had several tests or you can think about that big test that you feared or struggled with because we all experience tests. Not just written tests or oral exam tests, but we experience tests of life where things come against us and things will, just circumstances and suffering and pain and anxiety. We experience all kinds of tests in our lives. We're familiar with them, but we don't always pass them. The tests of life can either overwhelm us or strengthen us. How we respond determines the outcome. And we're going to look at David's life and see how he was tested and how he overcame. We'll look at how David walked through life and overcame this specific test in his life. Because we need to understand as believers how to pass the tests of life because we don't always do so. The question that I believe David's life answers in this little clip of his narrative is how can we detect a test and then pass the test? This was a moment in David's life where he experienced a test of his integrity. And I believe that you and I can detect a test when a test is clear, when the intensity of, our, of your integrity is investigated. I, I really like alliteration. A test is clear when the intensity of your integrity is investigated. And we will see how David's integrity was investigated. We'll look at 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 1-3 through 3, to look at this specific point, how the intensity of his integrity was investigated. 1 Samuel 24, 1-3. When, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Here's a test of David's life. David had done nothing wrong. If you were to go back into this story and see that David was blessed and anointed by Samuel, David had the Holy Spirit upon him, and David slew Goliath and then became one of the most popular features of Israel because he was a figure of war, where he would slay many, many men, more than Saul ever did. And the only thing that David did was walk in the Spirit, and that caused Saul's jealousy. Saul knew that he was not supposed to be the king anymore because Samuel told him that God will remove you from your place. Samuel was very specific with Saul, and Saul feared David because he, ex- he felt David was next. He knew David was supposed to be next, but he wanted to eliminate David so that didn't happen. So as he heard where David was after Jonathan had warned him and Saul tried to kill his own son by throwing spears at him and he had thrown spears at David while David was there singing and trying to get him to relax, Saul tried to kill him. Here he finds out where David is and brings 3,000 men with him. He really wants David to die. He is done and fed up with the stories of David's Greatness, 3,000 soldiers. Now, here's an experience that you, you and I may not have where our enemy becomes very vulnerable in front of us. 
David was in a cave hiding with his men in the area of En Gedi. And Saul, with his 3,000 men, was like, hey, I need a break. I need to go to the bathroom. And when it says he went in to relieve himself in the cave, this isn't a simple matter of number one. He's taking his time. He goes deep into the cave to go to the bathroom, away from the sight of his men. This was not a short trip. And as he's in there, going to the bathroom, relieving himself, as the scripture says, David is in that very cave. His men see Saul there. They see him taking his time, sitting down for a long period of time. And they tell David, this is your chance. This is your opportunity. His integrity was tested. Swindoll says this, If you ever want to test the carnality of a person, ask them what you should do when your enemy is vulnerable. This is a very vulnerable moment. Saul does not have his spear near him. His pants are literally down to his ankles, where if he were to get up, he would fall over. If David came after him, there would be nothing that Saul could do. And David knew it. David's men knew it. But when his enemy was vulnerable, he did not kill him. I believe that our true nature is exposed in how we respond to tests of integrity. Our true nature is exposed in how we respond to tests of integrity. How would you respond in this moment? You know that you're supposed to be king. You know that you've been anointed. You know that the Spirit of God is with you. You know that you've been able to take out the enemies of Israel. You know that many men who are following you would do anything for you. You know that Saul is supposed to no longer be king. And you know that Saul tried to kill you and your best friend. And here he is with 3,000 men trying to take your own life. But he's vulnerable. How would you respond? This is where we look at these portions of Scripture and easily because it's narrative, we can read through it and not ask ourselves the deeper questions. The deeper question of how would I respond? If my enemy is vulnerable, someone who has been gossiping about me, talking bad about me, and we find out that they do something that we can scatter all across Facebook or Instagram or Twitter and we can put their name in the mud and we're the only ones who know it, how would we respond? How do we respond when we're alone? Do we have character to push back the enemy's temptations? Do we have the capability to push back what the enemy desires for us to do? Or are we people of integrity? It's an important question that as we come to these portions of Scripture, we must rest and ask ourselves, how would I respond? It's one of the reasons why we're doing this series as we walk through the lives of the people in Scripture, of these great men and women that we will look at their lives and see how did they live their lives? How did they follow God? How were they resting and relying upon God? Not just reading through it as a narrative. David walked in integrity. And I believe that in this moment, David gives us four keys of walking in integrity. Four keys to passing these types of tests. We can detect the test is in our life when our integrity is investigated. When the enemy comes and pokes at our integrity and says, what are you going to do? David responded with these four keys. And the first, four, the first key is the key of value. 
We are to value the voice of the Lord and quiet the voices of the many. Value the voice of the Lord and quiet the voices of the many. 1 Samuel 24, verse 4, simply says this, And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give you your enemy into your hands, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He went up behind him as he was sitting down and just cut a corner of his robe. Simple. He didn't kill him. He didn't take advantage of that vulnerable moment. He did something, but he didn't do what his friends, the men that followed him, wanted him to do. It would have appeared that this was the answer to his question. That this was the moment where David could kill Saul and take the throne. Where David could claim his right. But he doesn't. He does something different. The men in his cave wanted him to kill Saul, and he said no. He said no. He did not kill Saul. And he came back to his men, and he shared with them that this is not the time. God, yes, he said that to me. You're using God's words against me. But he said, I can do what seems good to me, not take advantage of the moment and kill him. Men, you must understand the voice of the Lord is more important than your voice. As he looked at his men who he loved, who would give up anything and everything for him and have, he responds and says, the Lord's voice is more important than yours. One commentator said this, the situation was so extraordinary that David's men concluded God made it happen to fulfill the prophetic words, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Yet David did not listen to their voice. You and I, we have many voices that would seek to speak into our lives. There are some good voices, men and women, who are listening to the Lord and, and, and do speak truth into our hearts and into our lives. But there are other voices that would clamor for us to do that which God would not want us to do. And too often we give in to those voices. We do not listen for the Lord's voice. If you remember, Pastor Mike in the life of Joshua shared with us that moment where Joshua did not listen to the voice of the Lord and the pain that it caused to the entirety of Israel. Even still, to this moment in the life of Saul and David, those people were still thorns in the side of the people of Israel because Joshua did not listen to the voice of the Lord. But here David quiets the voices of the many and he hears the voice of the Lord. You and I must do the same. We must put away all other voices and listen simply to the one voice, the voice of the Lord. And when those people who are around us confirm the word that the Lord has already birthed within our own hearts, then we know that this is the Lord's voice, that God is using them to speak to us. But we will simply detect when someone is speaking into us after we've heard from the Lord, who is actually speaking the Lord's voice and who is actually speaking the voice of the flesh or the voice of the enemy. And to hear his voice, we must have an open Bible with open ears to the Spirit. 
How often when we open up the scriptures are we saying, Holy Spirit of the living God, make these words come alive to my soul. Or how often do we just simply crack open the Bible and say that's enough? You see, the Holy Spirit who wrote the Word desires to make the Word make sense to our hearts, into our lives, into our souls. But we can't figure it out on our own. I think we arrogantly open the Bible and think, I'm going to understand and study the Bible today. We might have a commentary next to us, or we might have a a good devotional, and those people do have really good insight. But are we asking the Holy Spirit to speak to us when we open the Word? I challenge you to do that every time. That is where we really hear the voice of the Lord, the open Bible with ears to hear the Spirit. We need to seek His face and wait for His voice. This leads us to the next key. The second key that David gives us in order to pass the test is the key of reliance. Rely on the Lord and His ways, not yourself and your ways. 1 Samuel 24, 5-7 continues, And after David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe, he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing this is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Once David heard the voice of the Lord, he stepped into obedience. His men were saying, okay, David, if you're not going to do it, we're going to do it. If you're a little bit of a chicken, we'll take care of it. We'll do it on your behalf because it's your time. This is your moment. We know it. We see it. And he's like, hey, no, mm -mm, this is not the time. I know for a fact this is not the time because David was convicted of what he had just done. Now, he had not necessarily sinned against Saul. As we'll see, he says, what is my sin against you? He's asking that question, but we know that he was on shaky ground. The Spirit of God was speaking to his soul. You're on shaky ground, David. This is not the way. This is not the place. It's time for you to do something different. It's time for you to be a different type of king before you're even the king. It's time for you to change the minds of your men. Push them back. Stand up to them. The Spirit convicted David. Because in cutting off the corner of the robe, he did a couple of things. In cutting off the corner of the robe, he defiled uh, Saul's robe and made him unclean. Because his robe was supposed to be all together. So he had hindered his ability, Saul's ability, to be clean. But he had also, if someone, as you remember, when we see the robe coming off and being placed on someone else in the story of Jonathan with David last week, it is a symbol of kingship. And so there could have been a symbolic thing of him taking the robe for himself. And so he was convicted, this is not what I'm supposed to do. This is not the way it's supposed to happen. And he responded in obedience. He responded in obedience. How often do we try to take control of our situations? When things are getting a little out of control, when the tests are difficult, how often do we say, God, I'm done waiting. I'm tired of waiting. Here's a situation that seems like it's set up by you. I'm going to take it by the horns and go after it. 
How often? I know in my life I do it way too often. Because I think I know better sometimes than God does. And I try to step into that place of being God and say, no, this looks good. And I can even convince myself that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. But David did not do that. And he persuaded his men to move back. Swindoll says, since the desire for revenge is predictable, refuse to fight in the flesh about this specific story. You and I can refuse to fight in the flesh and rest on the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God will never lead us down the wrong path. He will always lead us down the right path. There's a, a book by a guy named Gene Edwards called The Tale of Three Kings. And it has been one of the most important books in my life when it comes to understanding the, the beauty of David's life and his choices of following the Lord. Now, it follows the chronological life of David, but it is an allegorical story. It kind of gives backstory narrative of what might have been said behind closed doors with David and his men. Because all we know is that David persuaded his men not to go. So it's allegory. It's not reality. It's not a, a biblical translation. But when I was going through a really difficult time in my life, a, a pastor friend gave this to me and said, listen, this book, although small and allegorical, it will let you see the type of person, king, man, you should be. Read the scripture of David's life. Ask the Holy Spirit what's from him and what's not. But this book will help you see what type of man and what type of leader you should be. It follows the life of David, Saul, and Absalom and shows how David chose not to throw spears, how David chose not to kill Saul, how David chose not to pursue and kill his son Absalom. And in this moment of in the cave, while he's persuading his men, Gene Edwards supposes this might be something David would have said. Better he kill me than I learn his ways. Better he kill me than I become as he is. I shall not practice the ways that cause kings to go mad. I will not throw spears, nor will I allow hatred to grow in my heart. I will not avenge. I will not destroy the Lord's anointed. Not now, not ever. I love how he depicts that narrative, gives a backstory of what David could have said to persuade his men. David did not want to become a king like Saul. Saul had gone crazy by this time. And he said, I know why Saul went crazy, and I will not be a king like that. Leads us to the third key that David followed. The third key is the key of humility. Humility always weakens the enemy's grip. Humility always weakens the enemy's grip. Look at this passage, 1 Samuel 24, 8-12. It continues the narrative. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks you harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hands today in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know 
and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. 1 Peter 3.9 is the way he lived in this. It says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. David does something militarily dumb. It's kind of a, a theme throughout the lives of these men as they don't do the military correct thing. Here are 3,000 men who are outside the cave that David is hiding in. I don't know if you know anything about caves, but there's no way out except one in a cave. And so, in fact, this would be a horrible death trap for him and his men. They could go into the cave, push them back to the back wall of the cave, and annihilate them. They could not get out. They could block off the cave where those men could not get water or food. And David goes out to the mouth of the cave, and he looks at Saul, and he calls his name. And he goes alone. He doesn't even take men with him. There's no emissary. There's no person who's going to talk to the king first. It's David himself. And he goes and he shares with him how he had cut his robe, which, I mean, Saul would be pretty upset about altogether said. But he says, I did, I did this and I did not kill you. But then he does something even more ridiculous. He bows to Saul. And he puts his face to the earth. And in this sense of paying homage, he has no weapon with him. He has nothing except himself bowing on the ground, offering homage to Saul. The man who would kill him, he makes himself vulnerable even more so than Saul was. Because he's around 3,000 of Saul's men. He walked in humility. He understood, even before 1 Peter 3.9 was ever written or thought about being written by Peter, because Peter was not yet alive, he lived out, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. You see, David understood what God was doing in his life. God was using these cave moments to prepare David to be the king. He knew he was supposed to be king, but he trusted that God would make him king. He knew that the words of, of, of Samuel over his life, that God would make those things happen. He did not have to make them happen himself. To the point of utter humility, he goes out and he shares with Saul what he could have done. And he walks humbly with the Lord. How, how are we walking in humility. You see, when the enemy seeks to tempt us or draw us out or give us to live into the flesh, we need to be humble and admit, I can't do it. A, number one. Number two, walk in humility saying, it's not about me, it's not about my revenge. God promises that he will be our revenge. He will be the one to avenge us. We do not have to do that on our own. We should never try to do it on our own. We need to walk in humility. One commentator of this passage says that David's words had a great impact on the king as a parent. Formerly, he had refused even to mention the name of his enemy. Now he called him David. 
Formerly, David was Saul's son-in-law. Now he is my son. Saul was now emotionally broken and wept aloud, as we will see in the next portion of Scripture. David's humility broke something in Saul, released the enemy's grip. And we know that David did not die in this moment because we know the rest of David's story. He did become king. He did take over the throne. But too often, you and I walk in pride. We don't allow the Spirit to give us the humility that we need. We don't admit our inability to walk within our lives. We cannot do it. I believe that St. Augustine of, uh, of Hippo, or Augustine, however you want to say it, says it well. He said, pride is pregnant with all possible sin. Pride is pregnant with all possible sin. And we can see this in Romans 12, 3 as well, that we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but walk in humility. What, what Augustine, Augustine or Augustine, however you want to say it, whatever he, what he's saying is that pride is what leads us to all other sin because we think we can do it. It becomes about us. I want to live in the flesh. I want to do what I want to do. That is at first the very moment of pride. And Augustine would say that that moment that David and, and, or the moment that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit was a moment of pride. Their sin was pride because they felt they could be better than God. How often are we walking in pride? How often do we see ourselves better than others? Those people that frustrate us, those people that we disagree with, those people that don't see things eye to eye the way we do. How often do we walk in arrogance rather than humility? How often do we think we're always right? Or how often do we admit, I could be wrong? Those are hard words for us to say because we don't ever want to be wrong. Right, guys? We want to be right. But it's important that we walk in humility. That is the very next key then, leads us into this sense of humility, brings us to the fourth key, and that's the key of letting go. Let the Lord fight your battles for you. 1 Samuel 24, 13 through 15. As the proverb of the ancient says, Out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. There's an old song that I grew up with, The Battle Belongs to the Lord. I'm sure many of you can, can know that song and, and could probably start singing it right now if I asked you to. It's an oldie but a goodie where it says that truth. The battle belongs to the Lord. He is good. He is wonderful. It is not our battle to fight. But how often, how often do we try to fight our own battles? You see, God has a record of 100% winning the battles that he fights. He never loses, ever. But we always lose. So why do we try to battle our own battles when our record is horrible and his record is perfect? That's like putting a person who has never hit the ball in baseball and say, hey, why don't you go and, and try and see if you can get a base hit? Rather than putting in the guy that always hits a home run 100% of the time. That's silly. No coach would do that. They'd be like, sorry, dude, you're on the bench forever. 
We need to bench ourselves. That's where humility happens, where we sit back and we say, okay, God, this battle belongs to you. It's easy sometimes to sing songs. It's really difficult to live them. The battle is not ours to fight, and David recognized this. Another commentator says David's respect for human authority was based on his respect for divine authority. His allowing God to fight the battle, walk in humility, and bow down to Saul was not necessarily about Saul. It was first and foremost about his belief in God's authority. I will not touch the Lord's anointed. He knew that this man was still anointed king until God himself removed him. That it was not his place to take it himself. That it was God's place to do what God had said he would do. He respected God above all. God's voice, God's word, he walked in humility. But how often do we do the exact opposite? Now we've seen these issues of of value, valuing the Lord's voice, walking in humility, allowing the Lord to fight our battles and relying on the Lord, the four keys of a test. But what does success in passing a test bring? Why is it important that you and I pass the test that God has for us? I believe point number 10. Passing the tests of life sets us up to receive more responsibility. Passing the test of life sets us up to receive more responsibility. We see that in Luke 16, 10. Or when I give you little and you are successful with it, I will give you more. And we see this in the life of David. 1 Samuel 24, 16 through 22. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. The humility broke him. He said to David, You are more righteous than I. For you have repaid me good, where I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established In your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Saul himself, in a moment of clarity, because of David's humility, because David was handing the battle over to the Lord, Saul himself saw David's future. And here he asks David to make a promise, a vow that he will not cut off his family. And you know what? We see that David honors this for the rest of his life. This moment, David honors his promise. He did not destroy Saul's family. When he had the opportunity, he rejected it. When he had the ability to throw spears at Saul's family, Saul was dead. Barely anybody knew this promise was made. David didn't have to honor it in human terms, but David does. And because he was faithful with little, God saw him ready. 
His men saw him ready. Imagine being those 3,000 men that were going with Saul to kill David. And this scenario happens. And they hear Saul's words. They were like, huh. That's a really interesting scenario. David could have killed Saul. And here's the thing. We know that Saul continued to be crazy. Saul continued to seek David's life even after this moment. Saul did not follow through on his promises, but David followed through on his. And eventually, God gave David the throne. Saul took his own life. David didn't have to even raise a finger against Saul. How beautiful is that? When we entrust ourselves to the Lord, that doesn't mean that things are going to be easy. Remember, Saul still sought David's life. But when we give him the battle and we stop trying to fight it on our own, there is a peace that comes. There is a a sense of God's presence. We're hearing his voice and walking in obedience. And when we walk in obedience, there is more that God has for us to have. When we walk in obedience, we receive more responsibility. Edwards, in his conclusion of the narrative of the cave moment, I I love the, the view that he has of this scenario. Edwards concludes his allegorical narrative of this moment by saying, angels went to bed that night too and dreamed in the afterglow of that rare, rare day that God might yet be able to give his authority to a trustworthy vessel. David was the trustworthy vessel that God would give the keys to the kingdom to because he valued God's voice. He relied upon the Lord. He walked in humility and allowed the Lord to fight his battles. May we be the same. May we walk in this type of integrity. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the stories of Scripture that we know they're 100% true and 100% applicable to our lives. I pray, Holy Spirit of the living God, that we will be people who rely upon you and we will see that the battles in our lives that seem so overwhelming are minuscule compared to you. In your holy and precious name, amen.